economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Kevin Ugarteche, producer and graduate assistant for the Gordon Institute. Dr. Ross McCullough, the founder of the Gordon Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. Finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordon Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, so um, we thought we'd get into a little bit different topic here, someone relationships, politics, friendships. Um, uh, sometimes they can be fragile, and with a lot of uh, events going on, you'd think that the thicker our relationships, you know, if you're really close with mom or dad or brother or sister, and that relationship is really tight, then you can pretty much talk about anything, right, and kind of view your opinion and uh, have somebody <laughs> tell you you're wrong and go on. But uh, when those relationships are a little thinner, um, you know, people might just choose to to cut them off. And so... Um, Justin, you had an example of, of something going on related to that? Yeah, so um, this morning in my inbox, I usually get the email from uh, Lou Rockwell, who's been sending emails since the, the mid-aughts or the early aughts. <laughs> um, and Lou Rockwell is the president of the Mises Institute down in Auburn, Alabama. Um, and that is a kind of economics and philosophy of economics think tank that focuses on the writings of Ludwig von Mises and uh, in general, like the Austrian school of economics and two of the brightest stars in the constellation of at least the Mises Institute have usually been the economist Walter Bloch and the philosopher economist uh, Hanserman Hoppe. And they've both written very glowingly of each other in the past. And so I was kind of uh, taken aback this morning when I looked in my email and I saw um, an article from Hans Hermann Hoppe. Uh, it's an open letter to Walter E. Block. And the, the second paragraph ends um, by saying, if a person closely associated with your name goes astray and falls into serious error, you may be compelled to publicly distance and disassociate yourself from this person in order to protect your own personal and intellectual reputation, such as the case with Walter Block. And they have a disagreement over Israel and Palestine, and in particular, who is in the right and who is in the wrong and what ought to be done. And we haven't touched on the Israel-Palestine issue in this podcast, and I actually don't even think we need to touch on it i think that i think that that issue is very messy and i think that if if we did argue with it argue about it with each other we might think different things and we might disagree about it um and i i think that's okay and so i was more alarmed or i guess just disappointed by this uh public um kind of disowning of somebody who has been a close intellectual companion and as far as I thought, a good friend for a number of years. Um, so I thought maybe that could open a discussion about 
like what friendship is and what loyalty is because i think that this is happening across the across our society now not just regarding israel and palestine or whatever but people who are breaking off personal relationships because of different interpretations about like cultural or political issues and um my my take is that this is almost always not good um and that it's a symptom of something that's not good uh so i i was just curious about what you guys thought yeah i guess i have a couple thoughts on this i i think in general terms i agree with you justin i think we're probably on similar pages here but i do want to go to like the the possibility of there being like limit cases that where something like this does make sense um and I, so i guess there's two different aspects that we should cover is one at what point is it appropriate to end a relationship that you have with someone because they've taken a turn even well, we could say politically that's fine uh that is just like a step too far like i can imagine uh like steps too far i don't think there's like a whole lot of people who are taking steps too far in our society right now but i can imagine what those look like but also a secondary uh matter i think is to what extent like those disavowals uh like if i disavow someone need to be like a public matter versus uh something kept between two people like to what extent this could have been an email uh versus not and i do think like i can also imagine situations where it should be public as well uh but i think the cases are more limited than people tend to uh engage with in personal practices so i that's the two issues i see here is a when is uh far too far and then b uh yeah, like what is it's what should uh the end of a relationship look like with respect to like these bigger societal existential issues yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, I think I just had what what you made me think of was to what extent is that belief or comment or behavior of the other person a reflection of themselves that you didn't that you were unaware of? So is it a reflection of that maybe these guys weren't as tight as you thought they appeared to be? Um, and through saying things like that at different times and in different circumstances um is it just a matter of a, a process of revealing who the true person is and they weren't as deep into the relationship as i was kind of saying at the beginning if you're real thick with the relationship of being able to find either some forgiveness understanding uh agree to disagree and we're friends on 80 percent of the things and so i can overlook the 20 percent that disgust me even possibly yeah, I don't want my my position to be taken as like, once you're friends with somebody, that's it. And you have to be friends with them forever. You know, if somebody says like, I thought you and Billy were friends. And they go, yeah, but then he killed my dad. You know, then uh, it makes sense to be like, oh, yeah, I can understand why you're not friends anymore. I, I was looking forward to the extreme thought experiments that were coming. So. <laughs> but it strikes me that the other point that Peter made about whether or not this should have been an email rather than an open letter, like, I think that that is a, a really good point about, like, what sh what form should disagreements among friends take? Mm -hmm. um, you know, does Hoppe think Block is going to, you know, kill his family? Um, I just see tempers flaring about this issue, and I don't see, 
I don't I don't see the point. I think it's worse to make these kinds of yeah it, public I, accusations. Like I'm never I'm not going to talk to this person anymore. Right, right. Because then you you've really drawn a line in the sand that's hard to overcome. Two years from now, you start chumming up with them. Well, wait a second, you wrote this. You know, whatever. It kind of makes it a little bit weird, but. <laughs> I also thought maybe that within their relationship, especially an intellectual relationship, let's call it, the norm of communication might have been like publishing and writing and, you know, conflicts. And so was it was that such a norm for the two of them that he didn't even think twice about writing it in a, you know? The, the claim isn't Walter's position is wrong here. Wrong that I have to disassociate myself from the person not their position right and that's that's the thing that i think is yeah that to me seems like it it misunderstands like what friendship is um it seems to me like insofar as you are friends with somebody that means that when you have disagreements you do try to do the email thing I and mean, you don't like air your dirty laundry to the world or throw somebody yes. else you're saying of, it's almost the definition of friendship you would think that you'll work to overcome that. Yeah, or sometimes or you know, I hear people say like, oh, well, you know, when they talk about like what loyalty is, it, you know, they talk about, well, you shouldn't, you know, if it's going to harm you, why are you being loyal to that person? It's like, well, that, if loyalty is nothing but doing, uh, you know, helping somebody out when it's in your best interest to, that kind of seems like it's just prudence, not yeah. loyalty. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so uh, I, it, it just boggled my mind. And this is kind of inside baseball, but um, Hoppe says, you know, Walter Block is espousing a position that is as warmongerish as those crazy, as those Randians. And uh, people, the Ayn Rand Institute, of course, is usually very hawkish on foreign policy. Um, and meaning, meaning what for listeners? What do you mean by on foreign policy? After 9-11, the Ayn Rand Institute published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal titled End States That Sponsor Terrorism, calling for an immediate attack on Iran. Um, so they're, they're very pro-war uh, usually. Okay. Um, but the thing that a lot of people also don't like about the Ayn Rand Institute, and I say this as somebody who like used to be a huge, like, you know, advocate of this position is that uh, the Ameren Institute is famous for like excommunicating people and for doing the exact same thing that it seems like Hoppe is doing. Like where if you disagree about one thing, then you are out and nobody's allowed to talk to you anymore. And it's specifically for the reason that Hoppe said in order to maintain the brand, right? So Hoppe seems to think he's like saving the libertarian brand by attempting to excommunicate Walter Block. And I think that's just harmful. I think that when the Randians did it, it was bad for the Ayn Rand's brand. I just think that um, it's a way to conduct yourself that doesn't it doesn't inspire anybody else to join you, no matter how hard and um, the unifying, ideologically unifying effect it might have on the internal cadre. You just end up with this like cadre of people who believe one thing and ends up with this continue to be in your own echo chamber type of thing yeah it's uh it's cultish in my opinion so but I, I don't think it should be super surprising that this happens with libertarians in fact, in fact it tends to happen with most extreme political ideologies and the reason that i think that's the case 
his most extreme political ideologies sort of deny the existence of the social contracts. And what that does is it deny denying that position then requires you to accept that like government action is not of a different kind than uh, non-government action or political action is not of a different kind of non-political action. And once you do that, like you start to realize like if it's the case that government isn't the special category that gets to do things, uh, then like lots of evil gets perpetuated by the government. And it's evil that people like don't talk about. It's evil that if you saw it in your daily life and you didn't say anything or do anything about it, like I would consider you to be a bad person. And so, you know, if the government is engaged in this max mass this massive uh, theft scheme against individuals where we're stealing thousands of people's hard-earned money every year, uh, you know, including like stuff on the margin that could leave people lead people into poverty. And then I don't do anything. Imagine like I saw a criminal uh, robbing someone on the street, like, you know, and that person was on the brink of poverty. And I just kind of go about my day and pretend like it's not happening. So there's like a sense in which this kind of like it, it, I'm sympathetic to what happens here, because like once you take this step of, oh, it turns out like government action and state action and political actor action isn't really like categorically like morally superior to the normal person action. This almost becomes natural to like view political enemies as personal enemies. I think that's understandable, but there's like significant issues with it. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's mis a mistake for a lot of libertarians, whether it's the Ayn Rand folks who yes, are terrible on this issue, uh, but uh, you know, or like uh, Hopper, whoever in, the, in this case to do this is that um, I think there's an extent to which like a crime that happens right next to you that you have like certain ability to impact is is like actually different than like a crime that happens like far away from you that you don't really have a whole lot of control over. Uh, and I think it's different in a in such an extreme degree that it actually does call for different reactions. And, and that's not a bad thing. We've talked about a million times on this podcast, Justin's principle of permissive partiality, that idea that like it's OK for you to care about things that are close to you more than things that are really far away from you, you know, not literally, literally geographically. But I think that kind of feeds in here is like people take, I think, a correct step into saying, hey, look, like government actions can be evil too. And because, but then they take the second step of because of that, we should treat a government official or somebody supporting government policies that are bad the same as we treat a criminal who's breaking into a house or someone who's got a gun to somebody's head. And I think that's actually where the, the mistake is made, that there's like enough distance between the first and second step there that like it actually becomes appropriate to deal with these things differently. So uh, listen, I do think people can go politically too far to the point where you shouldn't like be friends with them anymore, right? Like and I can imagine all sorts of positions, you know, pick a genocidal position. My friend starts advocating for that. I'm going to talk to them and say, hey, what, what's going on? But past a certain point, I actually do think even like a public like disavowal is sometimes appropriate. Like if you are a big public figure, you've worked with someone a lot in the past, mm -hmm. they start like spewing like, you know, uh, murderous things about like whole groups of people. That's a problem. The question, though, is like, is that explicitly what's happening here? And I don't think the answer is yes. I understand why people get really worked up about the Israel-Palestine thing, because like it's very easy to interpret this as like one group trying to genocide another, because both groups are trying to kill each other. That That's like undeniable. But when I, and I hate to get into particulars of the conflict too much, but ultimately, like when you have this conversation with people, they'll start talking about things like titles to houses 
and they'll say like these people are kicked out and like this group of people still has the title of their houses it's like at that point my response is like yeah that may be true and i hope that gets sorted out if that's the case but like i'm not there uh in fact even if you presented me with one of these titles i wouldn't be able to read it i have no idea if this is legitimate and you could argue that that's just like ignorance and evil ignorance on my part that i i'm not trying to learn about the conflict but you can't learn about every conflict right and so once something becomes complicated like that it's hard for me to say someone is evil for taking a particular position on it, like who has the proper title to land and what the response should be. It's like, I don't even know. So why would I say that this person is wrong uh, for their particular belief? I don't know. So it, people can get carried away with it. Uh, and in fact, I think even taking a position to some extent is getting carried away with it. But like people do take the position and it seems understandable why they do. All right. So Dr. Jacobson just laid out a whole bunch of interesting stuff and complex stuff that will come back to on the break, but I would like him after we get back from the break to just um, kind of identify maybe real short what, what you think the social contract is. So we'll pick up there in just a sec. Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Each of these fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. This spring, Ottawa University is organizing a PPE League competition of politics, philosophy, and economics. Students in this competition will compete leveraging the ideas of philosophy, politics, and economics in various events. If you're a professor or an advisor of college students and you're interested in your school competing in PPE League this spring, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. We have some great programming going on for high school students. We have an online microeconomics class. Yes, you can earn college credit for $200 by taking an online class. It's affordable, flexible, layered with support. Our new online micro is optimized for you. If you'd like to consider some events for your high school students or that class, please contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. All right, so we're back, and uh, Peter, you just had a, a bundle of things of neat, interesting issues wrapped up into what you said, uh, but early on in that, you mentioned the social contract. I was wondering if you, for the listeners, and myself for that matter, just kind of what, what is social contract in a nutshell for you? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways that you can define it, but I think the easiest way to think about it is, like, there. I'd say the the majority view, even though sometimes people even say they disagree with this, but I think they actually do, the majority view in society is that, like, because we've been born into like a, the particular society we have and we have sort of like benefit from that particular society and take part in it in a certain way. Uh, we've implicitly agreed to like particular rules about how that society is governed, including, uh, you know, rules about what the government is allowed to do in our lives. Uh, so that's how I think about the social contract is you've sort of implicitly agreed uh, and given your consent to a lot of government actions, even if you don't vote for them. Uh, by taking part in a society where, like, we've got this voting system that uses or that makes decisions. Yeah, I thought um, what you said before the break about this move from, um, you know, obvious blatant theft to, uh, 
you know, a condemning of all the state's actions. Um, and that being like a maybe a problematic move or one that's um, even for those of us um, like me, and I think probably like both of you to a degree that sees a lot of what the government does as unethical in a way that's different than the way that almost everybody else who we live with um, considers things. Um, one of the things this argument does is you start out with really easy cases. Like, um, you know, suppose somebody robs somebody on the street. Isn't that bad? They just take their money without asking. And then you go, well, that isn't that what the government does when they do this, blah, 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 blah. And um, whether or not that's correct, you have to realize that what you're doing there is you're starting out with a case where everybody has the same or a very similar moral valence to the action. They interpret that action in the same way. And then you try through a series of like intuition pumps to show that this other thing that you're talking about is similar to this first thing in the right ways. Um, and I think that's a good way to argue, but it's important to realize that not everybody comes into that argument viewing that's why you're arguing. You have a different moral valence thing that you disagree about. And I think um, arguing about it is good. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to figure out, try to figure out what the world looks like from somebody else's perspective. And what you do when you say, this person is so beyond the pale, like I'm not going to consider them anymore, is you're saying like, I, I can't even think my way into their perspective or like I don't need to or their perspective doesn't make sense. And I think there are some perspectives that don't make sense um, or that are evil, et cetera, wrong. Um, but I think that's that's a really small class of those perspectives. And I think that one of the things that um, a liberal education is supposed to do writ large is teach you how to try to figure out what the world looks like from somebody's perspective that isn't yours. Um, and that's difficult. Um, and negotiating how to live in a world with people who don't have the same perspective as you, that's why we have the kind of social contract that Peter talked about. It just seems to me like giving up on that like isn't, isn't really good. And, and uh, people do disagree. And one of the things that I think, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but uh, one of the things that moves like this seem to preclude is a kind of discussion, not only where you see the other person's perspective, but this seems to kind of preclude forgiveness in a way that I think is important. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't know, like I get angry about stuff all the time. If you're, if these get posted in order, then last week on the podcast, I flew off the handle at Russ about something. <laughs> um, and I realized I flew off the handle. I came in the next day and said, uh, I think I was wrong with what I said and that was rude and uncalled for and I'm sorry. Uh, but if Russ immediately goes, Justin flew off the handle and I did, right? I'm saying that I did. Oh, Russ I immediately did, went, I didn't. But before, no, my point here is that you were being a good exemplar of like what a friend in a discussion does. Uh, you know, you, you didn't say immediately, given what Justin said, I need to uh, <laughs> disentangle his reputation from that of the Gwartney Institute and mm -hmm. mine too, because uh, this is obviously a crazy person who flies off the handle. Um, <laughs> like, uh, it seems like we want in our personal lives to leave room for those kinds of interactions. And this seems to preclude that. And I think it's not like 
Like this didn't make me angry when I read it, it just made me sad. Yeah, and I, I kind of wondered if there's not some cultural shifts going on because of the way we communicate through social media. Are we setting ourselves up for more and more people to treat friendship a certain way that's different than what we're talking about with, you know, I don't know if you want to call it true friendship or whatever, the, the way we're defining it, that you'd overlook some of that is uh, the, whether it's the communication on social media that we get from other places that puts us in our silos where we know there's documented uh, proof that Facebook or other things feed to you what they think you like. And if you're more conservative, you get fed more conservative stuff. And if you're more uh, progressive, you get fed more progressive stuff. And so that's one element of it. And then also just this communication. Uh, is that really deteriorating what we traditionally called as friendship? And we might just have less friendships. Yeah, I... I actually think the problem is even deeper than like recent social media changes. I think the problem is like the way that we have sold democracy as a system and the way we've sold representation in politics as a system. Again, I and I think most people actually intuitively understand this, though some people will try to fight against it that even like, here's how I think about things. There are a set of good things that you can do in any moments. Like there's, uh, it's not a, not a one shot thing where you can either do like the good thing or the bad thing. It's like, there's a set of good things you can do. There's a set of bad things that you can do. Uh, and then there's also within that set of good things you can do, good things that you can do that won't have any effect at all. And so like, probably the best thing to do is to do a good thing that has an effect. If like, you know, that's on the table, do the good thing that makes a difference rather than the good thing that doesn't make a difference. I think there are some exceptions where it's important to take a stand or whatever, even if you're going to fail, don't get me wrong. But what we've been sold with democracy, and I think people get this from a young age, is that like you make the difference in the political system, mm -hmm. like your voice, your vote counts in a way that can like change the world into a better place. And 99% of the time, that just is not true. I mean, that, that's the matter of fact. It's like 99% of the time in democracy, like you're insignificant uh, and your voice in politics doesn't make much of a difference and your vote doesn't make much of a difference. And I'm not saying this because I'm happy about it. I'm saying it because it's just true. Right. Like that finds me, you know, a collection of a thousand people uh, who have significantly changed politics. Uh, I think you're going to be have within the last 10 years, I think you're going to have a hard time searching for those people. And if you find them, you're going to find people who are already in positions of power, not like uh, individuals outside the system. And so what this does, this idea that we can have an impact, it gives us a false sense of responsibility to have an impact through like the political process. It sort of intertangles our personal uh, ethics with political actions. And so, yeah, politics is really important. And the things that happen in the political system are really important. So if you think that you control with your vote and with your voice, the political system, of course you should be doing things related to politics all the time. The personal should be the political. Why would you waste your time uh, improving your relationships around you when you could be saving the world through politics? Uh, and if that, that were the trade-off, then that would make sense, but it's not. Uh, we've been sold a false a set of goods. Uh, there, There's not the option to make the world a better place through politics 99% of the time. It can happen, but it doesn't very often. Most of the ways that you improve the world are like around you and your personal actions having nothing to do with bills or senates or congresses or any of that. And so I think this is a feature of democracy that relationships get polluted when you have a this feeling that every election is the most important thing and I 
shapes or the focal points that determines the results of the election. If that happens and you like befriend someone who is working against you, you've essentially found your mortal enemy uh, <laughs> if this person disagrees with you. Right. It's just an unhealthy way to live. The world uh, comes down to you versus them. Yeah. It, it, in the time of like kings and queens, most the average person didn't believe they mattered in politics. Only the kings and queens mattered in politics. And what happened when kings and queens had different views of things? Uh, they went to war with each other, right? Different countries, kings and queens, would go to war and try to destroy one another. Now everybody views themselves wrongly as a king or queen. And so you're naturally going to go to war with your enemies. <laughs> I think, too, uh, there's this idea that, um, and I think this is very prominent in libertarian circles, and I know this used to be something that I would do all the time, is this idea that, well, the way you change people's minds is you argue with them about stuff. Mm. Right? Um, and I think that's really can be alienating and i actually think that the way you change people's minds more often than not is by um uh like uh modeling the kind of life that you think is a good life to live mm -hmm. and if you're doing that especially around people who disagree with you about ethical or political issues i think that's a lot more effective um so something Peter said a couple podcasts ago was like, we should, I think, I just think it's a mistake to talk about politics. It shouldn't be something we talk about. We should be feel filthy talking about it. Um, and then like what you just said about the, like the ways you actually do good or in your, you know, your family and your community with those close to you. I think that if you actually live that way, it's much, uh, you are much more apt to get people to go something like, what does Peter believe? Because he seems kind of happy and like the stuff that he's doing seems to be seems to be paying off rather than even if you try to explain like you are spending your time on national issues. You know, you should be doing something uh, locally, though, that immediately will put somebody on the defensive. Yeah. Um, yeah and you made me think of uh, <clears throat> some advice I got from somebody on, you know, logically trying to win the debate, so to speak, or whatever, uh, but to lead with the heart first will maybe have a better chance of having a meeting of the minds rather than to lead with the logic and the you know the the details of the solution is to lead with the heart that hey we have a shared thing here we want to help reduce poverty or we won't we want to eliminate war or we want to you know whatever um and so i think that's an important part of that um communication process that often doesn't get done with <laughs> the Twitter blasts and other comments and criticisms that go on. There's no leading with the heart. Usually it's attack, attack, attack. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't, doesn't help things. Yeah. I think also this does uh, to tie in a, a bit of a faith element here. Um, I think the Christian conception of grace and the, I would say the mainstream, uh, you know, Mainstream Protestant, I'll be fair to the Catholics, I won't call them not mainstream, but the mainstream Protestant, uh, and and to some extent Catholic, I think there's some, some tie-in, maybe more than people realize, uh, view of sin uh, kind of sits uncomfortably with most people. Yeah. This idea that like you, when you commit any sin at all, really, in a sense, are put in the same uh, moral category as like murderers and you know thieves and stuff like that that's not to say literally every sin's the same in a certain sense but in the sense that you become separated from god when you miss the mark yeah uh there is a sense in which we are all sinners and we're all in need of forgiveness 
And I actually think this intuition, even though I don't see it explicitly stated like this in the Bible, so I'm extrapolating a little bit, but I think this is related to some things we've talked about on this podcast before, like the Stanford Prison Experiment, uh, or uh, Justin, what's the one with the electric shock? Milgram. Yeah, the Milgram Experiment. Uh, and, you know, if you read the book, No Ordinary Men, which I will not lie and say that I've read all of, but I've skimmed through passages on it, which is about how, like, a lot of the Nazi executioners were basically just ordinary people. They weren't, like, rah-rah party members. They were just, like, guys who got picked up and drafted and, you know, did these horrible things. What we see time and time again in the history in history is, like, it's not that they're, that evil forces are ruled by, like, supremely evil people. Yeah, It's actually, like, the worst things in history are done by mostly normal people. Uh, that you would have like if you had met them at a different time in a different place you could have been friends you could have broken bread or anything like that and so I don't think what that that tells us is that like there's a bunch of evil people that out there be afraid I think what that tells us is like you are like a hair's breath or a hair's breath away from like being one of those people and I think like everybody listening should take that very seriously that if you were born in a different place and you had a, d- a different set of constraints at a different time, there's a good chance you could have ended up being like one of the bad guys of history, really. Uh, and we, again, go back and listen to those podcasts about the Milgram experiment, the Stanford prison experiment. You know, I, I think th- those are pretty convincing. Yeah. And so what Christianity says is yes, like, yeah, you're, you're, you actually are one of those people. Yeah. Maybe it's manifesting differently, but you're one of them. Yeah. And grace. And that really transforms, I think, the way that you can have personal relationships because then um, it's actually not only incumbent upon you to forgive someone whose political ideology uh, you see as like objectionable, but it's actually incumbent upon you to forgive someone and to give grace to a person whose like actual actions you find pretty significantly objectionable. Like, you know, a repentant murderer in Christianity uh, takes on the righteousness of Christ if they believe in Christ and they repent. Even if it's, yeah, even if it's the last second of their life, people get mad about this, but this is what the Bible teaches. And why? Because if our own righteousness were the accounting system, all of us would fall short. We'd all deserve eternal punishment, right? Yeah. And so I I think that uh, Christianity helps us in this conversation and having a good Christian framework helps us because it's much easier to give grace to someone and to forgive someone once you recognize in yourself that you're not that far away from that person. But also within Christianity, uh, I just want to comment that it doesn't mean that that person's not subject to human consequences. Of course, with yeah. It, right? yeah. So the grace of God is there. God forgives, get to go to heaven, uh, no matter what you did, how egregious it was, how bad it was. Uh, but you still might have some human yeah, consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Right? absolutely. And that, that's biblical as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I think it's summed up in the, like, there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? It's not, I think what you're saying isn't like, I'm a hair's breadth away from it, and it's because I'm such I'm such a good guy. That's the hair's breadth difference, right? right. The, the difference is like, no, that that could have been me. That would have been me, and ha, had I been in that circumstance. Um, yeah, yeah, and and that I, I agree with Russ. That doesn't mean that we don't give any consequences in life, but it means like the consequences that you give should happen in light of like, oh, I could be standing right there, and that person could be standing right here, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it, it's pretty easy to understand. Again, that doesn't mean no consequences. I believe in justice. I think we need to punish immoral action. Uh, but yeah, in light, a... in light of reality, uh, not pretending like, uh, it's like the world of righteous people and evil people. And we are one of the righteous and all the right. people we disagree with are one of the evil. The status quo in Christianity is we all start off with a shared experience of evil and yeah. sin, uh, where it's ingrained in us. Uh, you can't avoid it. Um, and so the consequences is death, but, uh, through Christ there's forgiveness and, um, 
you move on. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think ultimately, you know, I, I don't like feel particularly inclined to weigh on, on the whole, like the personal matter between the two, but I, I, and I don't think any of us really do. We're more interested in the generalities. I would say similar to Justin, like loyalty actually means supporting someone when you wouldn't support the uh, normal person, right? If you're like, if you have particular loyalty to a friend, that means you should support them in a way you wouldn't support uh, just a normal person or a family member or something like that. Like it requires a little bit of discomfort and support. Otherwise it's just like what everybody does. Everybody supports the people who uh, it's fun for them to support, right? There's no nothing special about that. Uh, and so I, I think that you do give grace. You need to give like special room for somebody who you have had a historical relationship with to make what you would consider to be mistakes to have those conversations uh, most of the time to not distance yourself from a person because of their views because i think in most mainstream discourse we can find actually uh pretty decent reasons for like being on two different sides of a conflict i don't think that's like a carte blanche that someone's allowed to believe whatever they want but I think uh, like on this issue in particular, I see Walter Block's point and I see like the anti-Walter Block point and I understand how both people get there and like either side is insane or evil for it. And even when you do find that person who you think has done something that you think, oh, that's that's just like an evil position, then that's a period for you to talk to that person, to have the conversation, to have the, and frankly, maybe this happened in this situation, by the way. We don't know. There could have been behind the scenes conversations where uh you know opposite to block hey listen you're going down a path i can't follow uh i i'm gonna have to distance myself from you if you do this uh maybe that happens yes but it, i i think that's a step before that happens certainly uh and i think the the time the cases when that should happen should be few and far between if you find yourself doing this with a lot of people in your life you're, pro you're probably the, <laughs> you're problem. Probably the problem yeah yeah yeah, yeah. good point or you keep really bad company it's one of the two i guess uh so yeah. Well, and I, I hope the, so I have a meeting coming up with a student that, um, oh, I was going over minimum wage and some other, you know, basics. And, and I tend to, let's just say, convey a, a limited government. Uh, government isn't the answer to everything because I, I feel like I'm trying to break down what Peter said is that people come into it with the thought. I think the average person thinks, we need either more government or there's a there's a big role for government to you know control all the chaos and and so it takes time to kind of uh, at, at first I like to try to break that down and then show my reasoning why it is like through let's just say minimum wage supply and demand and kind of the basics well the student said you know I'd like to talk he brought up a few things after class and actually he brought up an Adam Smith uh, quote um, related to living wage or something and I said well, well let's sit down and have some office hours so that I could actually have some more in-depth time. And he wrote me this email. It was nice. It was great to see a student, you know, reaching out this way uh, that says, you know, here's some of the issues, minimum wage. I think he said in there something about um, you hate taxes or want to get rid of taxes, something that was clearly not what I would have said. But um, I, I got to admit that I, I might impress, put that impression out there in some ways, but then circle back to the economics of it. But he said, I, I want to resolve this disagreement, the things we that I disagree with you on. And so it kind of opened up like, are we going to have an emotional, like, I want the world to look this way, you want the world to look this way, or can I 
and uh, this is my goal when with this meeting is to just show that the kind of the positive side of the analysis to say this is what minimum wage does here's the mechanics there's nothing really to disagree with is what i'm hoping i get there but as we all know there are some real issues to agree with when it comes down to ethics and other things so um i don't know where that's all going to go but i'd like to just say i think economics helps to contribute to having a better dialogue but then both this walter and hopper are both on the econ side and that's where we ended up so i don't know so. when i teach political philosophy i usually try to do the kind of thing where i say look here are the facts and here are the things that you can value we can disagree about what's valuable um but we want to try and we might even disagree about what the facts are but insofar as we can what we want to do is try to iron out the facts and what we agree on is the empirical reality about the way things and then uh, we can figure out whether or not what you are advocating is going to achieve the results that you want right. by your own lights yeah right yeah um and i think when i succeed in changing minds in that course it's usually when i say i uh, usually when a student um says you know i thought that policy X was going to get me what I wanted. But now I think that um, that's not going to get what I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yep. it's, it's tougher to change someone's, um, change what they value. Yeah. But what you can sometimes show is that the policies that you're advocating aren't going to achieve the things you wanted to achieve, that right. you want to achieve. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and just like one last thing on this, I don't even like the language of like resolve this disagreement on because like it sort of implies like this must be fixed. Like yeah, it is a necessity that we come out of the conversation agreeing. I think it's an unrealistic standard to hold people to that everybody agrees with everything that you think, uh, especially like something is uh, minor. And I say minor not because like the minimum wage doesn't matter. I say minor because a snore uh, anybody Russ engages with on a daily basis is going to change the minimum wage conversation in the whole country, uh, <laughs> most likely. So it's a relatively minor thing to have a disagreement about in the grand scheme of life. Uh, <laughs> and like the idea that we have to agree on all these minutiae before like we're allowed to continue. Uh, it's it's just unrealistic. It's un un unhelpful, I, I think, ultimately, is like there exists space for people to have disagreements without uh it ruining relationships yeah i think that's a, the the part that you know well let's just agree to disagree but i like what you added on at the end is it's totally fine to agree to disagree and still be friends yeah right that's and still it. have the conversation and you don't even have, have to you don't yeah, even have, have to, to say we're not we're never going to talk about it again like we don't have to right. there never it, it never has to be the situation where like this is the final uh word and it's like we're going to move on it's like it's not the final word. Uh, millions of people are going to have this conversation uh, for thousands of years. So you're not the final word. It, the whole history of the universe doesn't hinge on your conversation today. I'm not talking to you. I just mean I'm yeah. talking to people in general. Yeah. The goal of conversation isn't agreement. I think it's understanding, right? You want the other person to understand your point of view. Mm -hmm. Right. If they can understand it and you can understand theirs, then that's where the agree to disagree and yeah yeah we want to be we want to be understood as humans i think is a, a natural thing all right well this has been a production of the gordon institute here at ottawa university I'd like to thank you all for listening a five-star rating helps other people find us 
please forward this along to your friends and family that you think might like to listen to it. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.